0: The days of simply showing up with an MOA story and data are rapidly disappearing.
1: We've moved beyond the question of do checkpoint inhibitors work to the question of can we predict which patients they're going to work in the best?
2: Manufacturers are turning increasingly to immunotherapeutic combinations in order to both raise the performance of these drugs in patients and to establish more competitive differentiation in the market.
3: Welcome to this edition of the ZS Associates European Podcast. I'm Jennifer Curtis. Cancer has been progressively redefined over the past 20 years. There are more than 700 cancer drugs just in late stage development. This is an increase of over 60% from a decade ago. One of the most active pipelines is an immunotherapy with almost 300 molecules in phase one or phase two trials. So today we're exploring immunotherapies. We're asking our experts, have immunotherapies, particularly checkpoint inhibitors, lived up to expectations? In an increasingly crowded market, what will drive success for the next waves of inhibitors? Today we'll speak with three the Associates industry experts And each of them are going to look at a different element of how immunotherapy players can compete in this evolving market. Our first expert is Malik Kamen.
0: Hi, I'm Malik Kamen. I'm the head of ZS's European Oncology Capability Center and I'm based out of Zurich. I've been working in the oncology market for the past 10 years, and really excited to chat with you guys today about immuno-oncology.
3: Can you give me the definition of of the immuno-oncology
0: landscape? Well, that's easier said than done, or easier asked than answered, to be honest with you. Immuno-oncology is something that's been around for a very long time. It certainly predates a lot of the stuff that most people are thinking about today when we think of immuno-oncology but it's become a part of our lexicon, and it's become an incredibly exciting part of cancer therapy in the last five years, in particular because of a class of drugs referred to as checkpoint inhibitors. So that would, that would include both CTLA-4 as well as pd one pdl one inhibitors. Of course, it doesn't stop there, and there's also been a tremendous amount of innovation around adoptive cell transfer. The most The most popular or at least the most well-known so far being CAR-T, and there's been an incredible amount of investment in that area as well, but that also includes things like uh, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes uh, and some other really interesting techniques that are coming down the pipe.
3: And maybe kind of thinking about the checkpoint inhibitors, what are the the broad categories of those and and what's the difference between them? Because I know they're often misunderstood.
0: Checkpoint inhibitors essentially are a class of drugs that are taking the brakes off of T cells and uh, allowing them to um, more effectively attack cancer cells. Uh, There's two different forms of this. As I've mentioned before, CTLA-4 was the very first checkpoint inhibitor to come to market. Of course, BMS led the way. Ipilimumab, that's one class. The other class are the pd one pdl one inhibitors, which are playing with a slightly different protein, but again on T-cells and really turning off uh, their, uh, their natural breaks.
3: So Malik, I just want to touch on one of the, the things that you just mentioned, particularly around BMS and the ipilimumab experience. Can you tell me a little bit more about how they effectively created a class?
0: Well, it, it's a really exciting story that we probably don't want to get too into the weeds on here. But it centers around this concept of pseudo progression, and uh, ipilimumab almost didn't make it to market because at the time we had such a, a beginner's understanding of immunotherapies that we weren't really sure what to do with these patients. So. In, in the early trials associated with ipilimumab, we weren't classifying pseudoprogression the right way. And, and the reason that's important is because in classic assessments of whether or not the tumor has responded, if the tumor grows beyond a certain point, then you are said to have progressive disease as opposed to a stable disease or a partial response or a complete response. Um, and it's only that BMS uh, cleverly realized That patients who they had tagged with progressive disease were actually still alive many, many months later. That they went back to the FDA and they filed a special protocol amendment in order to change their endpoint such that they could include those patients who still had this survival as being patients who had responded to the drug. And had we not had that change, I don't know if epilumab ever would have made it to market. BMS's commitment and the investigator's commitment to that drug and to those patients is the entire reason why we have PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors today.
3: How has immuno-oncology really changed the landscape
0: of of who are viable competitors in oncology? It's turned it upside down, to be frank with you. We have a number of different players in the market now who were not traditionally considered incumbents within oncology. Who are now doing incredibly, incredibly well. The most obvious company there is Merck with Keytruda, who was a, a later entrant into the, the PD1, PDL1 market, and who now has arguably the, the runaway blockbuster within that class of drugs. I think there's some important lessons to be learned from the way Merck entered the market. They came into the market at a time where both BMS and Roche we were thinking really deeply about what was the right cutoff level to use in terms of PD-L1 expression within patients. And they were looking at levels ranging between 1% and 5%, and they were taking a look at things like whether or not the, the protein was expressed on T cells or expressed on cancer cells. And there's a lot of super interesting science there what Merck wound up doing, however, was Merck wound up creating a niche for itself. And, and they, they decided to run a trial for people who were expressing PDL1 50% or greater. And there really wasn't a precedent for this that I'm aware of. Uh, they, they picked a target that was a pretty aggressive target and uh, a patient population in which they thought they could show a really profound result. Um, and it worked. I mean, they, they got a fantastic result in, in that group of uh, non-small cell lung cancer patients, and it's really what started to, uh, to propel them forward. So they, they really defined the PDL1 high expressor group as being, you know people that had PDL1 expressed on 50 percent more uh, of their cells. And then they followed that up with PDL1 low expressors. In combination with chemotherapy, and again, reasonable people could argue whether or not that was their only choice uh, because they didn't have another drug at the time to to parlay with, or whether they were just being very customer centric and listening to what physicians were asking for. But it turned out that a lot of the community was super curious to see how a PD-1 inhibitor would would work in combination with chemotherapy, despite being a non-traditional oncology company, despite being late to market, uh, Merck really catapulted itself into a leadership position very quickly uh, by taking in my mind what was a clear differentiation strategy within the clinical trials that it ran. It picked specific patient populations that it wanted to win in. It generated the evidence to prove that it was best there uh, and and really sort of um, leapfrogged its way uh, into into the number one position we've talked about
3: the big players so obviously we have the the big five pharma. each have their own um immunotherapy checkpoints um we also have then kind of the rest of big pharma that's dipping their toes into it as well and then we have emerging biotech so this space is incredibly crowded you know seen a lot of press Um, about the amount of money and investment that's going in such a crowded space. What advice do you have for pharmaceutical companies that are in the space or looking to get
0: into it? So the advice that I have is that if you are not a first-to-market player already defending a certain space within the market, then really, really be clear about how you're going to enter any one of the histologies that you're thinking about entering. The days of simply showing up with an MOA story and data are rapidly disappearing. In fact, for some time now, the immunotherapy market has seemed to be relatively insensitive to data based arguments. In our work with clients, we've been noticing that physicians have really poor recall of the data that's associated with individual molecules within the diseases. And even when they do remember the data, they are as frequently misassociating that with the wrong molecule as they are getting it right. So physicians are really, really overwhelmed with the data. If you think you're going to show up with an MOA and a data story and win the market? You're sadly mistaken. Do think about the patient subtypes that you're going to go after. Do think about a sequencing strategy for how you can maximize all of the patients within your indication claimant. So those are, those are for the manufacturers that are trying to break into this market. For the manufacturers that are already in the market, I think the, the interesting question next is, how do we continue to leverage the immune system? And is it, and are checkpoint inhibitors enough? There's a number of different interesting areas of research that are, that are really exciting, that are really well worth exploring. And, and some of the manufacturers have been much more active in that space than others. In terms of trying to figure out, well, where do we go next? Checkpoint inhibition is just one way to work with the immune system. Um, There are other ways to do that as well. So, uh, cancer vaccines, novel combinations uh, potentially with a checkpoint inhibitor uh, is potentially really interesting. Understanding the genomic patterns of response, the interplay of microbiome uh, with uh, with the immune system is a fascinating area of research. Uh, All of the different omics. Another fascinating uh, area of research. So, there's a lot of unanswered and super interesting scientific questions here. And I think for the manufacturers who are already in the space, it's a real opportunity to demonstrate uh, disease leadership in specific diseases. Uh, And so, probably all of our listeners will have manufacturers that readily come to mind who do a good job of making commitments to specific diseases and to specific. Uh, populations and really doing interesting research and science there.
3: We've now discussed how checkpoint inhibitors have changed the oncology landscape, and some of the targeted strategies early manufacturers used to enter into the field and establish leadership. But have immunotherapies lived up to the promise? And in what direction is the industry going? John Rothman shares his perspective.
1: Yeah, hi. I'm John Rothman. I'm a principal in our uh, ZS Boston office, and uh, I lead our oncology vertical at ZS, so work with our clients across a wide range of oncology issues. Um, and uh, particularly within that, I focus a lot of my time on go-to-market strategy.
3: Kind of looking back with where we are right now, has immunocology and checkpoint inhibitors lived up to the province?
1: They have delivered. I'll say that, you know, I'll say that with a caveat that they haven't, uh, you know, it's not a cure for every patient, which is, of course, what everyone would love, love to have. Um, but I think what's really so exciting about immuno-oncology and the checkpoint inhibitors in particular um, is that there is the possibility of creating that long-tail responder, that, that responder that will, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, look like a cure or at least uh, will be, you know, disease-free for uh, a sustained period of time, much longer than, uh, perhaps would have had before. So while checkpoint inhibitors don't work for every patient, right? If you look at, for example, um, you know, in non-small cell lung cancer, uh, the checkpoint inhibitors, you know, may only work really well in, in you know, a quarter of the patients. Um, but for those quarter of, of patients that, that do benefit, uh, you know, the, the impact can be quite profound. I think the other thing that, that sort of lives up to the promise, so to speak, is the breadth of tumor types where we're finding the checkpoint inhibitors to be, um, you know, to be efficacious. Um, of course, it's a range of solid tumors where, they're, uh, where we've had the most success so far, um, but we're seeing, you know, uh, impact across such a, such a wide range of, of tumor types from and obviously melanoma and lung um, to things such as renal cell carcinoma. Um, and, and even recently in uh, triple negative breast cancer and, and a whole host of other uh, solid tumors where we're seeing efficacy from these products.
3: Entrance of immuno-oncology um, you know, has really changed the typical oncology competitor set. Um, and a lot of other competitors have started to emerge to kind of challenge some of the established giants, like, you know, for example, Roche and Novartis. Um, how do you think this happened and what do you think drove it?
1: So I think what we've seen is that um, you know we have uh, about seven different PD-1, PDL-1 uh, checkpoint inhibitors on the market right now, and um, while there's a, uh, still some confusion I think among physicians as to how truly different these products are, um, we have seen some products start to pull away a little bit in terms of uh, you know demonstrating clinical data for, uh, you know, wide variety of tumor types and in earlier lines, getting there first um, and getting there with, uh, you know, the most data has created a situation where it becomes harder and harder to um, recruit patients into trials for, uh, you know, for other therapies and also, um, you know, becomes, uh, you know, less um, of a... Uh, there's, you know, sort of less awareness of these other products, um, as, uh, you know, as they're, they're gaining approval. And so more of a burden on the the manufacturers to, uh, to educate customers. So I do think we've seen a dynamic where, um, you know, while there are, uh, you know, seven approved, uh, therapies, there's, um, there's, you know, uh, fewer and fewer, um, green fields, so to speak, right, and, and each of the therapies that have come a little later to market have had to uh, pursue um, different indications, narrower indications in some cases, or, um, or look for ways to uh, achieve trial results that would help them to uh, either leapfrog or move into a space that, you know, is not already occupied by, um, you know, some of the first players to market. So I think that that's been a very interesting competitive dynamic that's uh, you know that's played out in this market. I think the other piece that's, that's been really interesting is that as um, checkpoint inhibitors have really established themselves as you know the backbone of therapy, and now now really where a lot of the action is is in combination with a checkpoint inhibitor. How can we improve the efficacy beyond what we're getting from these these oncology agents? Um, and and so you see a lot of a lot of drugs now being tested in combination with those checkpoint inhibitors.
3: What next for the checkpoint inhibitors? And so this idea, one, of of being more intentional and defined in the the patient population, subpopulation that you're targeting, then also looking to develop more of these combination strategies um, in the future. Um, What else? Is there anything else that you see for the future of checkpoint inhibitors?
1: Well, I think that we've moved beyond the... um, question of do checkpoint inhibitors work um to the question of which patients and can we predict which patients they're going to work in uh the best or the most there's a lot of um power but also a lot of frustration in you know some of the existing um uh, biomarkers pdl1 expression is is one that you know i think uh physicians and, and pathologists find to be suboptimal, um, both in terms of interpreting the results and then also um, being able to translate the interpretation of those results into a meaningful decision about uh, which therapy to use and for which patient and when. Tumor mutational burden is another one where you know there's been a lot of exploration and uh, um, hope that that might be a strong biomarker for and determining which patients, you know, will, these checkpoint inhibitors will work in. But I think even there, there's still a lot of questions around how good of a, a marker that will be. And uh, is it the total, you know, tumor burden or are there specific mutations um, that, uh, that matter more than others? I think that is, is still something that is, is being explored with checkpoint inhibitors that are going to be used increasingly in combination with other novel therapies um, which together will carry a very hefty price tag. You know, I think there's a lot of interest in figuring out exactly and you know more precisely when therapies are going to work.
3: You know, discuss a lot of different points. I guess if you had to synthesize it down to kind of the two or three key ideas that you would advise pharmaceutical clients looking to play in this space in the future, what would they be?
1: yeah so I think that if we look if, if we really fast forward a few years and we think about a world where um, perhaps we have you know uh, 10, 11, 12, even more you know checkpoint inhibitors that, that are approved and on the market, um, you know, while we've seen clinical differentiation uh, you know play out so far, I think that there's you know still potential that uh, this becomes uh, a market, if it's not already, uh, a market where um, the, the brands are looked at as, as commodities, right, where okay. checkpoint inhibitors are more or less interchangeable in customers' minds. And so I think about how do you win in a marketplace like that? And, and one of the things, at least, that we've seen from looking at other industries is that um, it really, uh, you know, becomes about creating a platform rather than the product as the, um, you know, the brand or the, the, uh, the therapy as the product, really becoming the, the platform as the product. And what I mean by that is, uh, um, you know, will we see uh, companies, um, you know, significantly reduce the cost of their checkpoint inhibitors or maybe even give away their checkpoint inhibitors, um, you know, for the purposes of expanding the network of therapies with which they're being uh, tested in, in, you know, uh, in combination um, or with the intent of expanding the pool of patients that uh, are, and or providers that are relying on, you know, their therapy as the backbone uh, checkpoint inhibitor for everything that they're doing. So you could envision a world, um, uh, you know, similar to what we've seen with, you know, in, in outside of pharma with companies like, you know, amazon.com, for example, where um, they've, you know, established a paradigm and um, probably in many cases, you know, given away uh, products or services at at a cost that was hard to compete or at a speed that was hard to compete um, for for other players. Um, But they've more or less, you know, uh, uh, captured the market in terms of being the online retailer of choice when there were many, many other online retailers, you know, offering uh, similar products and and services uh, to what they were offering. So um, if you think about, you know, winning in a commoditized world, I think that'll be a very different future for, Oncology companies than what uh, we've seen in the past, where oncology companies have typically uh, focused on and enjoyed the benefits of developing a novel therapy that is differentiated and that is, uh, um, uh, you know, the the key product in and of itself.
3: As the field moves from single products to exploring the potential of combination therapy. What can pharmaceutical companies do if pursuing this as a differentiation strategy? Sharon Carlsberg shares her perspective on trends in combination therapy development, from in-house opportunities to successful partnering.
2: My name is Sharon Carlsberg. I'm a principal with ZS. I've been with our organization for 15 years, and. More importantly, I've been what I call an oncology aficionado for over 25 years um, worth of work in the industry, spanning diagnostics and therapeutics. Given your background and area of expertise, i um, kind of perfect person to
3: be talking to to, to get a perspective on um, checkpoint inhibitors, and in particular, you know, we're seeing this intensely competitive and crowded landscape, uh, we're now starting to see the shift towards partnering and collaboration as a way to to differentiate. Um, What are your
2: thoughts on that? Yeah, I think one of the striking things, if we look across oncology, one of the striking things about the checkpoint inhibitor market is that there are, you know, I think at last count, at least six commercial assets that are approved for use. Um, if you look at clinical development, there's something like 2,000 ongoing clinical trials with PD1 and PDL1 inhibitors, and there's something like 300 more clinical trials that are ongoing with medicines that have not yet reached the market. So, obviously, we're talking about an incredibly crowded and competitive marketplace, both in terms of competition for patients in trials as well as for um, commercial. Dominance in a market with so many different treatment options within the same therapeutic category and the same mechanism of action. What I've witnessed is even with the top players in the checkpoint inhibitor space, there's still this recognition that despite the breadth of indications, um, most of which are solid tumors spanning, melanoma, lung cancer, breast cancer most recently, bladder cancer, we're still seeing that response rates for patients are not very high. In other words, if you have something less than 30% of patients responding to therapy, you're seeing good results for patients who respond, but we're still not seeing you know, response rates northward of 40 50 60%, which would be something that would be really exciting, seeing more patients respond to these drugs. As a result, manufacturers are turning increasingly to immunotherapeutic combinations, pairing something on a checkpoint inhibitor background, in order to both raise the performance of these drugs in patients and to establish more competitive differentiation in the market. Have we seen any examples
3: of of this kind of combination strategy being successful? Yeah,
2: I think there are... Two primary combination strategies that we've seen so far in the industry. One is in-house combination strategy. So most notably, you think about a company like a BMS, which has Opdivo, combining with another one of its own internal assets, in this case, Yervoy or ipilimumab. And the combination of the checkpoint inhibitor, um, Opdivo, with a CTLA-4 inhibitor, Yervoy, has demonstrated a significant benefit to patients. Most recently, or originally, this was done in advanced melanoma, metastatic melanoma, where the combination of devo was approved and is currently marketed for the treatment of melanoma. And in those patients who can tolerate the very strong effects of this combination regimen, those patients have higher response rates, much higher overall survival, and significant improvements in their disease outcomes. So that in-house combination strategy, another example of that would be AstraZeneca's combination of Imfinzi and Tremilumumab, again, a combination both within the organization of a checkpoint inhibitor, pdl one in this case, and Tremi, which is another CTLA-4 inhibitor, and that regimen is approved for use in, I think, stage three, or late stage, but non-metastatic, non-small cell lung cancer. Two companies, two combination regimens, both immunotherapy and entirely owned and developed within those organizations. A different strategy is partnering outside of your organization to create more effect and more differentiation. So here you might think about Merck's partnership with Pfizer. Um, there in this case, we've got Keytruda or Pembrolizumab combined with Lida, Exitinib, for the treatment of metastatic renal cell carcinoma, kidney cancer. There's an interesting combination where, again, trying to boost responses and survival for kidney cancer patients requires moving outside of Merck's organization, partnering with another oncology developer, and bringing to market, again, an approved solution, which is boosting survival outcomes for patients the in-house strategy that you talked about. Um, I
3: assume uh, a success factor in that is you need a certain amount of scale and size in order to be able to do that along with an existing pipeline. Um, are there any other kind of success drivers or critical success factors that would dictate a company moving more towards the in-house versus looking to to do the more
2: partnering approach? To your point about success factors is, you know, Roche Genentech has an anti pd one therapy a checkpoint inhibitor called Ticentric, which they've tried pairing with different um, molecules in-house with Avastin, with Cotelic, with other molecules. But one of the limitations is the market uptake and adoption of the backbone checkpoint inhibitor, Ticentric, which I think makes it challenging. You've got to show a very significant boost in overall survival to demonstrate the rationale for, say, an in-house combo with ticentric compared to something like an Obdivo combination where those drugs are showing um, both strong efficacy and have broad market adoption. So in addition to company scale, I think you have to look at the success factor of the checkpoint inhibitor itself to evaluate the likely success of going it along with an in-house combo. Merck, provides a really interesting counterpoint to the BMS example. If you look at what Merck has done with Keytruda, beyond the renal cell combination, Merck has very broadly, I think, allowed access to Keytruda, pembrolizumab, for companies and investigators beyond Merck's own research team, so that there's this broad access to Keytruda, allowing investigators to Look at different combination strategies in a whole wide range of tumor types and thereby bringing the data back to the company to find out which combination strategies might be most productive. It's an interesting counterpoint of in-house versus partnership or broad access to a checkpoint inhibitor to build the market.
3: Given given the success that we have seen with the Contruda example, what do you think remains kind of the, the main challenge? or barrier so more companies looking to pursue outside an in-house strategy?
2: So there's two things um, at a minimum. <laughs> One is when you partner outside of your company, there's a whole lot more you have to negotiate with a partner. From the commercial side, how are you going to co-promote? How are you going to ensure access to customers? How are you going to support, say, reimbursement and and access support for patients? Who takes responsibility for patient support programs in the case of a combination marketed therapy? So I think partnering, although it might be better clinically for patient outcomes, presents a lot of commercial challenges to um, pharmaceutical organizations. The other challenge, of course, with these combinations is as more and more checkpoint inhibitors flood the market, um, I'm not sure how many companies could actually pursue a Keytruda strategy. If Keytruda is more and more becoming the go-to checkpoint inhibitor, or even if it's Keytruda Noctivo, if you're the seventh one molecule coming to market, how do you persuade clinical investigators to use your checkpoint inhibitor when there are already so many sites and patients and healthcare providers that are comfortable with, let's call it, the dominant market presence? So it's not clear to me that you could pursue a sort of broad scatter shot of using a checkpoint inhibitor like a Keytruda beyond some of the top marketed products. Given some of the opportunities and challenges that you have just talked about,
3: what would you be recommending to to pharmaceutical companies that are considering partnering or collaborating in order to differentiate the space?
2: There are a few things that remain to be explored. Um, Certainly, there is a lot of debate around finding the right patients for these combination therapies. So, for example, if you are on a combination regimen of two originator therapies, Um, not say a checkpoint with a generic chemo. But if you're talking about a combination of two original therapies, the cost of treatment with either drug being around 100 to $120,000 a year, the cost of treatment to a patient could easily exceed a quarter of a million dollars for that year's therapy. You don't wanna be doing that for all patients in the disease area. So how can manufacturers that are bringing these combos forward use things like biomarker status, microtumor environment, um, you know, gene expression and use those as differentiators to identify the right population of patients who will benefit disproportionately from combo therapy without suffering from some of the toxicity profiles we see from these very strong drugs. So one, can you pick your patients more selectively so that the cost and the benefit ratios are much more favorable for combination um, checkpoint inhibitor therapies. Two, can you deliver that combined efficacy, increasing response rates, increasing overall survival with lower toxicity? Typically, any of the checkpoint combinations we've looked at have very high discontinuation rates due to sort of the over activation of the immune system. So can you deliver better efficacy with lower toxicity through a combo? Um, and then the third option would be can you make combination therapies available for a broader section of patients at a more affordable price point so that more patients could have access? Um, And given that that strategy might be not so palatable for many pharma manufacturers, the fourth option would be, can you go after untapped patient populations? I think AstraZeneca pursued a really interesting one, not choosing to play in the metastatic non-small cell lung cancer space, but moving into an earlier line, stage three patients, to try and demonstrate the benefit of a combination therapy. So there are strategies for differentiation that remain, but in each case, they're not low-hanging fruit. It's going to require a lot of effort, a lot of creativity, and a lot of very strong clinical and commercial savviness to pursue and win with those combination strategies.
3: We spoke to three ZS Associate experts who each offered a different view on the evolving and crowded checkpoint inhibitor immunotherapy landscape. For companies looking to either continue the plan or enter into the market, there are three things to really keep in mind. The checkpoint inhibitor market is now established. For anyone looking to break into it, or expanding it, you need to have a clear, differentiated patient segmentation strategy. Avoid the fear of niching your product and embrace a clear patient segmentation and positioning approach. Second, going forward, success is going to be more and more driven by combination therapies versus single product immunotherapies. Companies that are able to successfully pursue combination therapies by investing in the right immunotherapy platform and networks, we'll gain a competitive advantage. And third, while there are still opportunities to differentiate within the space, the low hanging fruit is gone. Commercial success will require a lot of effort and creativity, supported by strong clinical evidence and clear strategic trade-offs in the next evolution of the landscape. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the ZS Associates podcast. Thank you for joining us.